All right, this week we're beginning a new series entitled How to De-Stress in a Time of Distress. And there's a lot to talk about when it comes to stress because there are lots of sources of stress. And so we're going to spend some time in this series. It's going to take a few weeks. But uh, I don't have to explain to you that we're in a time of distress. You know this. I don't need to elaborate. But what we're going to do today is start where my mind naturally gravitates, just instinctively, because whenever there's distress, instinctively, I go to the reality that I can turn to the Lord. And it doesn't make sense to me to run in a time of distress unless you have a place or a person to whom to run. So what we're going to do today is start in Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, the entirety of the psalm. So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. I have taken refuge. This is David. I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, Escape to the mountains like a bird. For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is heaven. His eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and burning sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, during a time of distress, here's what I want more than anything else, and this may be you too. In a time of distress, what I want more than anything else is to experience God. But the strange thing is, in a time of distress, I think I'm least likely to experience God. It's sort of weird that way. I was visiting with a friend on Monday evening and he explained to me, I don't feel close to the Lord like I've been close to the Lord before. I don't hear from the Lord like I've heard from him before. And part of this has to do with the COVID-19 and all the crud in the news and everything. And I'm not where I need to be in terms of my experience of God, but I want that. And I can identify, and I think a lot of us here and out there, you can identify with this too. So the $24 million question is, how can I get what it is that I know that I need and what I really want, but I'm not experiencing? And that is the presence of God in a time of difficulty, trouble, or distress. We're going to answer that question today by turning our attention to Psalm chapter 11. Because this psalm, although it's very short, it's very sweet in that it gives us the essence of what we need to know from the Bible concerning how to experience God in a time of distress. So we're going to go through this psalm relatively uh, simply. We're going to go through it pretty much verse by verse. And in verse 1, you've noticed that David says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. Now, when you're reading through the psalms, you need to recognize that the psalms oftentimes are like online articles. Like if you get to an online article, you're going to see oftentimes in the first sentence, the author telling you what it is he's going to tell you before he tells you what he's going to tell you. And then the rest of the article is them telling you what they told you they were going to tell you in the very first sentence. And this happens with regards to the evening news. You might get 15 seconds of preview for the next 30 minutes. And in the next 30 minutes, they tell you everything they told you they were going to tell you. That's what's going on in Psalm chapter 11, verse 1. I have taken refuge in the Lord. And for the rest of the Psalm, David is explaining what that looks like. But before he gets to how we can experience the Lord and take refuge in the Lord... There is this imaginary conversation or this contrast 
because you'll notice at the end of verse 1 through the end of verse 3, everything is in quotations. And the reason everything is in quotations is because someone else is speaking to David. It's, it's of course, an imaginary conversation, but it represents very real words that people would say to David. Because you'll notice this at the end of verse 1, it says, How can you say to me, because someone else is saying this to David, Escape to the mountains like a bird. For look, the wicked string bows, they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So something terrible is happening here. We don't know exactly what the terrible thing is that is happening. We don't know it with precision. But there is this uh, powerful imagery in verse 2 of the arrows flowing, flying out of the shadows and, and coming at David. And so what appears to be the case here is a concern on David's part of being assassinated. And if you are a king in David's day, it's an ever-present danger to have your life taken from you. So biblical interpreters will think one of two things, either this... Psalm is coming from an early season of David's life when David is a young man and King Saul is chasing after him in the wilderness, literally trying to take his life. Or maybe this is from a a later period in David's life where his son Absalom or some other usurper is trying to undermine David and, and take away David's life. We don't know the specifics of the situation, but here's what we know with definitive understanding. David is in this psalm referencing a time in which everything seems to be falling apart. It's it's literally referencing a time in Israel's history where things are disintegrating, where the, the very basis for civil society is falling apart. David knows, I can't go to the army because I don't know who's on whose side, who in the army is on my side, who's against me, can't call the generals, can't call the lieutenants because are they with this side or with this side, who do I trust? And the advisors are telling him, you can't do much of anything. You can't go to your army, you can't call them together, you can't reference the judges, you cannot go to, to the elders, there's nowhere you can go. And so they say, you can't do anything. And then there's this poignant statement in verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When everything's crumbling from beneath your feet and you can't even trust where you are standing, what is there left to do? Nothing. You can't do anything. You're helpless. You don't have ground to stand on. So fly the coop. Fly to the mountains like a bird. Get away from all of this. Now, we don't know the exact specifics of the time and the situation. We're not privy to that information. But I think that God in his providence and perhaps the author in his wisdom just kept the details vague so that the readers, that would be you and me, so that the readers would be able to read this and apply it immediately and easily to their own situation, which it is easy to apply this because when the foundations seem to be coming undone, When uh, arrows from the shadows are flying at you, whether they be rumors or direct attacks or when the ground seems to be falling out from beneath your feet and you don't know who you can trust or what you can trust, in those times, you know what you want to do? If you're anything like me, here's what you want to do. You want to fly to the mountains. You want to go to the beach. You want to go fishing on the coast. You want to find that safe place on the couch and binge watch something on Netflix. You want to retreat to surfing around on the web or checking out what's going on in Facebook. 
But the one thing you don't want to do is engage the world around you when everything seems to be falling apart. See, the sad thing about being in a time of distress is not just that internally I'm not really happy right now. That's too bad. So sad. But the world doesn't revolve around you and it doesn't revolve around me. And I want you to be at peace internally. But here's the real tragedy. The real tragedy is in a time of distress, we have a tendency to be inactive. We have a tendency to not be productive. We have a tendency to not be who it is that Jesus has made us to be, which is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're no good to anyone. Why? Because we've retreated to the mountains. Because we've retreated to our couch. You know how it is. And it's kind of, it's very, very normal. For example, if somebody loses a limb or somebody loses a spouse to death or divorce, there's going to be a short season. Hopefully it's not a long season where the person is emotionally down and you hope it doesn't last a long time. You know why? Because, well, I've lost a limb. I, I don't have a leg to stand on anymore, or I've lost a spouse and I don't have that person, that husband or that wife that I thought I was going to be leaning on. And, and all of a sudden when your foundation is taken away, you just think, well, what's the good? What's the use? There were these things that I was trusting and, and I can't trust what I thought I could trust. And if I can't trust what I thought I could trust, why can I, I guess I can't trust anything. I might as well retreat. And when the world burns, we just kind of expect it to burn on occasion. I mean, there's going to be crazy people. There are the jokers and the scarecrows and the, you know, the banes. And like Alfred says, some people just want to watch the world burn. But... When the authorities and the structures that you trust seem to be throwing gasoline on the fire, you just want to retreat. And then when you do retreat and you find that solid place where you think you can rest for a season, when you find that spot, you don't want to move. I, my house, Gina's house, our house, it got pummeled by... Uh, Baseball-sized hail, I don't know how long ago this was, maybe six weeks ago, something like that. Y'all might be familiar with this. It pounded the house, and uh, we had a friend over there about two weeks ago that was checking out the roof and said, hey, here's a soft spot. We might need to replace this plywood. I'm not exactly sure. And it got me to thinking as he was up there on the roof, we're going to have roofers, and they're going to walk all over this roof, and some places are like 25 feet high, and that just scares the living daylights out of me because our roof is like a 10-12 pitch. I mean, it's super... But it's only 20 years old, the roof. These guys probably do about 150 roofs every year, probably on some houses that are 40 years old or 80 years old or more. And I've been on roofs before, and if you've ever kind of almost fallen through the roof or you've fallen through the roof, it makes you a little nervous to be up there. And I'm just thinking, if I found a spot and I, whoa, you know, that feels a little bit soft. When I find a space that is safe, I don't know that I want to take another step to the front or to my left, or to my right, or backwards, when I find the spot that is safe, I just want to stay there. Times of distress will paralyze you. And we are in a time of distress where it seems like structures of reason and structures that make civilized society possible are coming undone. So people are in distress. I get it. If you were to have told me, I don't know, one month ago, we're actually going to have a national conversation about whether or not we should, I don't know, reduce or even eliminate law enforcement in areas of the country where crime is already high. I would have told you, well, I would have asked you, what are you smoking? I mean, seriously, 
If I would have, if you would have said, hey, I just looked at my crystal ball and, and I have foreseen that a month from now, there are going to be white people speaking on behalf of black people shouting at black police officers that they are racist against black people. I would have said, I don't understand that. That just seems, that seems insane to me. Which by the way, since I brought it up, black lives matter. Do they? Here's, here's the statement. This is, this is absolutely from the Bible. Every Christian should agree with this. All black lives matter. All of them. You say, how do you know? Okay, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9, God is not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. God cares about all people. All black lives matter. Richard Brooks and uh, George Floyd and Elijah McClain, they matter to God. Uh, I especially think the thing with Elijah McClain, they just, oof, I still get chills when I think about it. It's just awful. You know who else matters to God? Black police officers all matter to God. And those teenagers that got shot in that lawless, no police zone in the middle of Seattle, they matter to God. And all the black business owners whose businesses were destroyed by rioters, they matter to God. Oh, and black children whose lives were cut short before birth, they all matter to God too. All black lives matter to Jesus. And because that's the case, those of us who are followers of Jesus ought to be saying the same thing. All black lives matter. And we ought to also be very, very careful about aligning ourselves with any group that would imply that some black lives don't matter as much as others. And we ought to be very careful about aligning ourselves with anybody that really insinuates that some lives just matter more than others. Blue lives matter. Why is that, why is that so controversial? I don't understand that. I really don't. Are there dirty cops? Yes. It, okay, is there racism in this country? Absolutely. I hear it from people in our congregation. I know it's there. But are there dirty cops? Yes. But what's new? Are there dirty politicians, crooked politicians? Yes. Are there perverts who are still in the ministry, priests or pastors? Yes. What's new? Are there ambulance-chasing lawyers? Yes, there are. There are bad apples in every barrel. So what's the solution? Throw away all the barrels? Really? Are we losing our minds? I'm serious. So here's where we are as a nation in terms of our conversations. Hey, let's not, let's not have better law enforcement. Let's just do away with law enforcement. Let's not have better laws and better representation. Let's just have no laws. Let's not have, not have better government. Let's just get rid of government. Let's not have better churches and better clergy, better pastors. Let's just get rid of them all. Anarchy? We're actually talking about anarchy as an appropriate solution. If I went to a doctor that was an anarchist and I said, hey, I just dislocated, you know, a couple of my fingers, which actually happened a few years ago. You know what an anarchist doctor would say? Oh, I've got the solution. Let's chop off your arm. That's not a good option. Are Are we losing our minds? There have always been problems with every system. And our solutions in the past may have varied from one another, but everybody always said, let's fix the problem. Let's fix the solution. Let's not end government. Let's not end law. Let's not end law enforcement. Let's not put an end to churches. 
Is anybody else here kind of feeling that we are losing foundations of reason and foundations to civil society? We are in the same situation in which David finds himself. Arrows arrows of insanity are flying from the shadows. The foundations are being destroyed. Now, if you're anything like me, here's what you want to do. Maybe you're not like me, but if you're like me, here's what you want to do when you're in a time of distress, when stuff's flying out of the shadows, when the foundations seem to be falling out from beneath your feet, here's what you want to do. Here's what I want to do. At least part of me does. Part of me wants to fly to the mountain, keep my beak shut, build a nice little nest on a cliff, and sit there the rest of my life and watch the world burn. And David knows that's not an option. How can we keep from feeling that way and retreat? How can we keep from retreating from a world that needs us to intervene? Here's how. You've got to find a refuge other than the mountain out in the wilderness. You've got to find your refuge in the Lord. How do you do this? Well, David tells us how. Okay, we're going to get to this. This is so helpful and very, very practical, frankly. How do I do this? David says, I've taken my refuge in the Lord. He's done the contrast. Here's what everybody wants to do. Fly away to the mountains. What's the use? Throw your hands up in the air. Give up and quit. Not going to happen. How do you find your refuge in the Lord? There are four basic things that are communicated to us here in the scriptures that we absolutely need to keep in mind at the forefront of our minds and imaginations. And the first is this. How do I retreat to the Lord so as as to be effective? Number one, you've got to recognize or remember who is ruling the world, and it isn't you. In verse 3, we see the foundations are being destroyed. Everything's falling apart. It's all disintegrating. But then in verse 4... You got God and he's not falling apart. He's in his holy temple. He is seated on his throne in heaven. He is reigning from above and he's not scrambling. He's not panicking. He's not falling apart because he's God. And if you're in God, you're not panicking. You're not falling apart. You're not coming undone at the seams because someone is ruling the world and it doesn't have to be you. When we panic, and I know this doesn't sound very nice to say to people, and I don't want to say this to you if you're panicking right now because I don't want you to feel like I'm judging or condemning. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging me. I'm not judging David. You know, I'm not. But listen, when we panic, here's what we are implicitly saying about God. We are saying either God is, he's got a bad character, Because look at what's happening. If he were a good God, he wouldn't be allowing this. Or we're saying he's good, but he's weak because he's not stopping any of this from happening. Or we're saying he's not even there. There's nobody behind the wheel steering the ship. When we panic, we're saying one of those three different things. And those have been the options that people have had really for centuries. Either God is a villain or he's a wimp or he's not there. That's why people frequently don't run to God as their refuge. Now, let me help you to understand something that you may not understand, but it's there, it's subtle, but it's absolutely there. If you have difficulty running to God as your refuge because you judge him to be weak or bad or just non-existent, there is 
there is an assumption you're making, and it's a massive assumption. The assumption that you're making and that I would be making in our time of panic is this. I know how the world needs to be run. I know when God should intervene and when he shouldn't. I know how things are supposed to unfold. That's the massive presumption when people don't turn to God as their refuge. Let me just give it to you in terms of the, of the argument. I know how the universe should be run. Number two, the universe is not unfolding as I know it should. Therefore, God is powerful but evil or he is uh, good but weak or God doesn't exist at all. Those, those have been the three options. <laughs> now listen, if there is a God, you should expect that God would know more than you do. And you say, well, I just don't believe in God because I, if, I, if there were a God, I would know more than God. You know, that's kind of arrogant. I hate to just point that out to you, but if you think you know how the universe should be run, I'm just telling you, that is a very poor assumption to make if, you, if, that's, what, if that's what's motivating you not to run to God. 95% of the time, the people, people don't turn to God because they're thinking, I, I know how things need to go. Really? You know how the universe should be run? Really? I, I want to suggest to you that not only do you not know how the universe should go, you don't even know how your own life should go. And even if you knew how your own life should go, you don't have the power to pull that off. I'm going to give you an example of this. I'll give you a glimpse into 24 hours with Ernest, and and, and I don't want to be boring and self-serving or anything. So just listen to this story. Uh, it's self-deprecating. It puts me in a bad light. You'll love it. Okay, so here, look, last Wednesday around 2 o'clock, things got really interesting. And, and in order to set up the, the, the story, let me just kind of back up. Uh we had this hailstorm at our house. Of course, it did damage to the roof. We're getting a new roof. Apex, fantastic. Love them. But we're going to get a new roof. But also, our cars all got damaged. Gina's car, Nathan's car, Shelby's car, my car, all of them got damaged. And they were all covered by the same insurance. Uh, now, one of the cars that suffered the least amount of damage, it was actually the least amount of damage, was mine because it's not a car. It's a Jeep. You know, no surprise there. Uh, but anyways, my son has a Mustang. And he lives in Waco, but he was actually at our house helping with some remodeling, but he was there. Car got pummeled, went back to Waco where he lives, and he took it into the body shop, Service King in Waco, to get it repaired. Now, it was all going to be covered by our insurance. So he takes it in. I think it's around June the 1st that he takes it in. And he's getting updates from from Service King on a regular basis. And I'm going to read you some of these updates. They're all texts that they would send. June 5th, update. We have updated your estimated completion date to June 30th. Same day, June 5th. Update. We have updated your completion date to June 26th, which is even better. June 16th. Update. We are over the halfway mark. Your Ford is still on target for June 26th. The next day, June 17th. Update. We are on track for June 26th. So Nathan's thinking what I would be thinking, what you'd be thinking. This is fantastic. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to get my car back in nine days, and this is going to be great. Then there's another update on June 24th. Update. We are on track for June 26th. So that's Wednesday of last week. He gets this update. We're on track for Friday. This is going to be great. Uh, and so Nathan's saying, okay, this is fine. But then they add to the text, if we encounter any delays, we'll call you. So on Friday of a week ago, June 26th, they didn't call him, and his car wasn't ready. And so Nathan's wondering what's going on. So he calls them. They don't return calls. Monday rolls around, and we get an email from our insurance company that says, the car has been totaled. 
And we're like, what? That doesn't fit with anything we're hearing from Service King in Waco. That can't be right. And so Nathan calls them. They don't call him back. He calls. They don't call back. We call our insurance. They don't call back. Wednesday rolls around and I tell Gene, okay, I'm going to call them. And so I call and then I call and then I call. And I'm getting happier and happier every time I call and don't get anybody. Because that's how I am, you know, like Jesus. And so I call and nobody answers. And finally, I call and Shonda answers the phone, our insurance agent. And uh, and she explains to me, no, your car has been totaled. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the money we think the car is worth. And it's like, how do you value that? I don't know. It's in a black box. How much is it? I don't know. Uh, you can buy it back for a salvage value. What is that? I don't know. And so I'm like, what's going on? And uh, Shonda also explains that my son has to return the rental car the next day. So they're taking his car, and he has to return the rental car. And I'm thinking, we're just now finding out about this? And so a verse came to mind from Psalm chapter 11. It wasn't the first one I've taken refuge in the Lord. It was like, you know, the Lord hates the wicked. Uh, Rain down burning coals and fire on the wicked. That's the verse that came to mind, but I didn't quote that to Shonda, but I like to quote scripture. But anyways, uh, I just kind of keep that to myself. And so we're talking like, what's going on here? So I say, call me back in 15 minutes because I know you've got to leave and I don't want to call you like 20 times and then you not answer. So she graciously called me back in 15 minutes. I said, I got to call my wife. I got to call my son. We got to figure this out. So I call Nathan and I say, hey, you need to go down to Service King and check things out. It seems like they haven't done any work on your car. It's like, what? And so he goes down to Service King, and sure enough, they had done nothing. And so he wasn't happy either. And the Lord hates violence, so we kept from doing anything, but we wanted to, but we know the Bible. Okay, so anyways, so he's upset, I'm upset, and and Gene and I are thinking, what are we going to do? And so we call around, and we're calling people who know stuff about insurance and the law, and uh and we're looking at Craigslist and people who are selling cars and weeding through the scams and whatever. And anyway, so Gene, making a long story short, by that time the next day, Gina and Nathan had gone to Dallas because they were going to get a car that we had picked out, but they had misrepresented that car and I had weeded through some other scams. And anyways, Gina got to spend time with her sister for lunch and brother-in-law and they, they ended up getting a car and the money worked out and it was actually preferable to the one that he had before and, and, and they had a good Actually, they ended up having a really good Thursday while I was at home arguing with people and uh, while people are on the roof, bang, bang, banging all day long. But that's okay. I'm not bitter. Uh, so here, the reason I tell you the whole story is this. Did anything go according to our plan? No. Is God the author of deception? No. Did we feel like we got treated really well? Not really. Is God, is God the one who directs scams? No. And yet, everything came together. Now, it doesn't always have to come together, but here's the reality of the situation. We didn't know what we needed, even in terms of a car. We didn't know how things were going to play out. We're not even in control of of timing and and how it's going to work together. But that's okay, because on Wednesday afternoon and Wednesday evening and Thursday morning, guess where God was? He was still in His holy temple on His throne. He was in the same place he was the day before and the same place he would be the next day. And he will always be there the next day and the next day and the next day as long as there are days and even beyond that. I don't run the world. You don't run the world. We don't have to. That's the first thing David recognizes. I'm not panicked because I have a God who is good 
and a God who is strong and a God who is there, and he's not moving. You can say amen to that. Okay, just so you're out there, everybody was, woo, screaming. Okay, fantastic. Uh, moving on real quickly here, three more things, and, and we're going to be done. How do I take refuge in the Lord, not just for my own personal benefit, but for the benefit of the world around me that seems to be falling apart? Recognize that you don't, you don't need to be in control. God's in control. But beyond that, recognize that times of distress are really examinations. Read verses four and five carefully. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Now, when you read this carefully, you say, okay, what's the negative word in there? Well, hates. That's negative. Hates. What is hate contrasted with? Well, you'd say, well, love, necessarily. But if you're just looking at the words here, hates the wicked, does what to the righteous? Examines. The examination of the righteous is a loving act of God. He's doing us a favor when he examines us. And the word examines is the same word that is translated elsewhere as tests. It's a good thing that in times of distress, you're tested and I'm tested. Why? Because a good test helps you to know what you don't know. We oftentimes think we know something, but then when we get the test, we go, oh, I didn't know that. And a good test will also help you to grow in your knowledge because not only will a good test show you what you don't know, but it will help you to know what it is that you need to know. Have you ever taken a bad test? You took a test from a teacher and you said, that they didn't test over anything that I, I thought I was going to get tested on. The, the test came and it didn't cover the notes that were given. It didn't cover the readings. It just kind of came out of left field. I don't know what's going on. God always gives good tests. It's an act of love to be tested. And you say, well, why would that be the case? Well, because when the distress comes and you get tested appropriately, you start to see where your foundation actually really needs to be. And that brings us to the third point. Rejoice that false foundations are being destroyed. And I'm going to just touch on this really quickly. If your foundation can be destroyed in a day, you probably have the wrong foundation. And I don't mean to be, uh, I don't mean to be light about this because if you've lost a job, I'm sorry, that's a real loss. And if you've lost reputation because somebody threw some stuff at you from the shadows, I'm sorry, that's a real loss. Or if you lost a spouse or you lost a friend, whether it be betrayal or divorce or death, those are real losses. But in those moments of distress, in those moments of testing, we become a little bit more aware of where our foundation ought to be. And the foundation that we need is the one that does not change. And there's only one unchanging foundation. And that's the Lord. And so it's a favor that he does us, as strange as this sounds, to recognize where our foundation needs to be. And so finally, number four, you want to take refuge in the Lord? See his face. Now, obviously, I really think this is obvious from the text. David is talking about a a future moment, the, the eschatological vision of God where one day we will see him face to face. I think that's largely what's going on. But the reality is the future is present in Christ. We do get to see his face. 
And so there is, I think, uh, an exhortation and encouragement to you and to me in our times of distress to see his face, to look at his face. Now, what do I mean by this? In times of distress, we will have a tendency to look in opposite directions. If you have a husband or a wife or a friend or boyfriend or girlfriend, you know how this is. There's trouble, there's stress, and and then what do you want to do? Well, you naturally want to turn your backs on each other. You naturally want to look away because you're angry in that moment because they're not doing what you thought that they were going to do. In those moments of distress, you've got to turn toward God. You've got to look into his face. It may not seem natural. And this is why in our times of distress, when we most want to experience God, we don't experience God because we think in our arrogance how things need to go. Things aren't going like they ought to go and in our opinions. And so we turn away from God and you've got to look at his face. Now, what do I mean by, by seeing his face? What, why, why his face? It's the same word that can be translated presence, face, the Hebrew word. His face, his presence, same word. But I love the translation of face because when you look in somebody's face, you see how they feel. You get feedback from them. This is why when it was all remote and there weren't any people in the auditorium and I'm speaking largely to the camera, I can't see people's faces. I don't know how they're feeling or responding. And so I would naturally imagine that everybody is awake and fully engaged and laughing at every joke. And now that I see real faces around here, I recognize that wasn't true. Uh, but you get feedback from people's faces. And when you look in his face, here's the feedback that you get from God. You get exactly what you need in your time of distress. That's why it's such a mistake in your distress not to see his face. I'll, I'll, I'll close on this. The, the men in our church are doing a, a first Fridays. That they, they get together. We've been reading through this book, The Christian Man, one chapter a month. It's not too much. And the first chapter of this book by Patrick Morley, The Christian Man, has this interesting little piece from Patrick Morley. And he, and he says, here's what you need to hear from God. Here's what you need to see in God. And he's just talking about our identity. And this is all from Scripture, okay? This is He's not making stuff up. This is, this is what God says to you and me, and we know this from the Bible. But you need to see this and hear this and know this in your time of distress. God says to you and to me, I love you very much. I know your name. I knit you together in your mother's womb. All the days of your life were ordained before one of them came to pass. I have determined the exact times and places where you should live. Your times are in my hands. I know every thought you have from afar. I know every word you speak before it forms on the tip of your tongue. You are my new creation. You are the full expression of my creative genius. I was at my very best when I made you. I will never forsake you or leave you. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hands. I began a good work in you and will carry it on to completion. When you are a battered reed, I will not break you off. When you are a smoldering wick, I will not put you out. Two sparrows are bought and sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without me knowing it. And you are worth more than many sparrows. I am patient, not wanting anyone to perish. You are my child, my follower, and my friend. And I am your father who loves you very much. See God's face in your distress.
you need it. Because when you see his face in your distress, you will do what deep down inside you know you need to do. And that is you will run to him. And you should. Because he is not a villain. He is not a wimp. And he is there for you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we are so grateful to have you as our God. We are so grateful to know that we do not need to run the world. We trust you. And we trust you not simply because, well, what other option do we have? We trust you because you have shown us your face in the scriptures and most pointedly in Christ to whom the scriptures point. We see your love for us. We see your power. We see your wisdom. We see your care. We see your heart. So, Lord, help us to take the test, to pass the test, to learn the test, to learn that our foundation ought to be in you. It's not just the best option available to us. It's the best option we could possibly imagine. Oh, and by the way, The world needs the rest of us to find our refuge in you so we can keep this world from disintegrating and falling into darkness. We are in Christ, the light of the world. We are in Christ, the salt of the earth. May we embrace our identity and live in step with it always. Forgive us those tendencies to retreat, forgive us those tendencies to remove ourselves from the difficulties of other people's lives. Forgive us those tendencies and help us to move forward, not in our own strength, but in the strength that we know we have from finding our refuge in you. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.